0: Hello, everybody. My name is Dr. Jennifer Vilwak, and I will be your host today. You are listening to the AAOA podcast. This is a non-promotional, non-CME disease state educational podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Otolaryngic Allergy in collaboration with and paid for by GSK. Um, because this is a disease state podcast, we will not be mentioning any specific medications, generic or otherwise. At most, we may refer to general mechanisms of uh, pathophysiology. Today, we are lucky enough to be joined by Dr. Amber Luang, who will be discussing common comorbidities associated with chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyposis. So welcome to you, Dr. Luong. Hey, Jennifer. How are you? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And so what we were hoping that we could start off doing is to have you just provide an overview of comorbidities that can occur with chronic rhinosinusitis, both with and without nasal polyposis. And these can be respiratory as well as non-respiratory symptoms or symptomatologies you commonly see. That's
1: a great question. You know, the way that I think about these comorbidities are ones that are sort of associated with the disease because they have similarities in in disease process. So, you know, for example, um, in the unified airway, right? The type two inflammatory disease that's associated with chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps. That's the, you know, process with the elevated IL-4 and five and 13, the eosinophils and the mast cells. So there is a commonality with that, and allergic asthma, and allergic rhinitis. So, not surprisingly, you see a lot of a co-presentation um, of allergic rhinitis and asthma with patients in chronic rhinosinusitis. In fact, we looked at this in our own patient population: um, the prevalence of asthma that was diagnosed, you know, specifically by a spirometry, not just by history or by their medications. And we found that uh, asthma could be found in about 60% of uh, patients with chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps. And this sort of matches the literature as well. Um, In addition, we also looked at patients without uh, nasal polyps. And even there, the prevalence is slightly higher, not nearly as high as that with polyps, but you get something like the low 20% um, versus the general population, which is about 8%. And then other things that are associated, um, you know, reflux disease, uh, eustachian tube dysfunction. Um, Sometimes that happens because of maybe the treatment as well as the pathophysiology, right? So you've got the inflammation in the nose and the sinuses that can affect the ability of the eustachian tube. Um, Reflux has been associated with some diseases, um, some chronic rhinosinusitis, And then there's some of the emotional or non, I guess, respiratory ones, such as, you know, sleep disturbances and and mood disorders like anxiety and depression. So those are some of the comorbidities that I see with uh, both chronic rhinosinusitis with and without nasal polyps.
0: Absolutely. And I was wondering if you could comment a little bit more specifically related to the respiratory comorbidities and, you know, I think a lot of us like you mentioned, we see the asthma, the allergic rhinitis and those associated symptoms. Are there any other respiratory things that should be on our radar?
1: Well, so those are the the two ones that I think when you look at polyp patients, um, especially like, I guess the, the, the typical presentation of nasal polyps, the, the middle-aged uh, person who maybe had a history of, of asthma uh, and then developed uh, polyps uh, similar to each other, kind of middle-aged. Now, there's an interesting population, uh, Jennifer, and I'm sure you've seen this too, where they're a little bit older uh, patients also presenting with polyps, but they are associated with kind of like bronchiectasis and a COPD. So you will sometimes get other types of lower airway inflammation that's a little bit different than your classic type two inflammatory disease process. And I'm not sure people really understand how that link other than maybe just the fact that you've got, you know, the upper airway, lower airway, in pro- close proximity, but the exact how they're associated with one another is not quite clear.
0: Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important to have all of these comorbid conditions and the associated symptoms on your radar, because certainly, you know, they may influence the next steps in your management or kind of what's on your differential or if we're needing to treat multiple different conditions simultaneously. And so I'm wondering, you know, as we think about the presence or absence of comorbidities, how do you find um, that they um, guide your diagnostic workup and kind of next steps when it comes to the patients that you see in your clinic?
1: The reason why I think these comorbidities are are important is number one, you know, um, let's say, so for example, you've got a patient who presents with you with polyps, and then um, you also through the history realize they have a history of allergic rhinitis and asthma. Well, it's starting to paint a pretty clear picture that this is a type two inflammatory disease process, right? So because uh, all of those diseases have in common that type two. So it's important in, in terms of also counseling your patient and thinking about the risk of recurrence of nasal polyps. In fact, I just saw a patient today who has nasal polyps, also allergic rhinitis, asthma. And then I, I did uh, a serum eosinophil level during his initial presentation. And that serum eosinophil level was high. And I did his surgery and he responded great. I mean, these polyps were about to come out of his nose on both sides, really bad with the whole eosinophilic mucin picture. And uh, I told him, I said, listen, you're gonna feel great after surgery, but because of all these other comorbidities, I told him that you were on the, the spectrum of severe disease and so we need to be number one vigilant about your treatment but also really being able to counsel them about you know the the high probability that these pulps may come back you know and so in fact he came back after doing really well for 8 months on you know steroid irrigations and um had a viral infection which then resulted in this acute exacerbation so it, it helps in not only you know treatment but also just being able to counsel your patients appropriately
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that actually, Dr. Luang, is a perfect segue into what I was hoping we could talk about next, um, which is actually what are the specific um, biomarkers or other specific characteristics that you tend to rely on as part of your workup? And you already mentioned the serum eosinophilia um, and those sorts of things. Is there anything else that you have found to be particularly useful? You know,
1: unfortunately, this is a hot area that still needs a lot of research. Um, You know, we all talk about utilization of serum eosinophils and even tissue eosinophil levels, right? So if these patients undergo surgery and uh, underneath a microscope, the pathologist can, can tell you that there's a higher prevalence of eosinophils versus other immune cells then that can be helpful. Unfortunately, it's not necessarily a one-to-one, right? So take, for example, the subtype of allergic fungal rhinosinusitis. In that patient population, the serum eosinophil levels that we followed and have looked into this, they're typically in the normal realm versus like a normal eosinophilic like CRS with nasal pulps where their serum eosinophil levels can be high. But when you look at the tissue, the uh, EOs are high and both of them are both type two diseases. And so I will get serum eosinophil levels in my patients, but, you know, admittedly, it, it you know, a normal serum eosinophil level doesn't necessarily mean that it's not an eosinophilic picture um, in that particular CRS with nasal polyp patient, but I will use that. And then other than that, I mentioned the the tissues uh, having some ability to look at the types of immune cells within the tissue But short of that, everything else is sort of uh, uh, up in the air. You know, people talk about osteopontin um, as a particular inflammatory cytokine. The other ones, you know, are all sort of uh, potential ones down the road that we may be able to develop into a clinical um, um, biomarker that we can order. But as of yet, there's not anything that other than serum eosinophils and tissue that we can use. Actually, I take that back you know, aspirin, exasperate respiratory disease. I know that the Mayo group is looking at urine um, uh, cyclooxygenase levels. So, uh, so those are, you know, those are things that also, they're not widely clinically available, but things that are um, in the, in the development stage or some people are using it for at least research purposes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that many of us, you know, as more and more information is published about, you know, the different endotypes and biomarkers, I think we're all just awaiting, you know, the, the time when they're going to be clinically available and readily clinically applicable as well. The
1: technology is definitely there, right? So we can do, you know, rapid tests for uh, various different viruses. We can easily get cytokine levels uh, quickly. So I think it's just a matter of time when these types of uh, swabs and, you know, you, you can swab your patient uh, put it on some sort of, you know, stick, and then and get a, a level of of um, inflammatory profile. It's just a matter of, you know, being able to then link that to some sort of clinical or endotype like you referred to.
0: So Dr. Luang, you had briefly mentioned a very important and oftentimes challenging patient cohort and some of your prior responses. And I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about that now. And specifically, I'm wondering about our aspirin-exasperated respiratory disease um, patients. And so I'm wondering, you know, how are you managing these folks? Are you leveraging your allergy immunology colleagues for challenges and desensitization? And then is there anything else that's going through your mind during um, the workup of patients that are presenting with a little bit more complicated constellation of symptoms?
1: Yes. Great question, Jennifer. Thank you. Absolutely. In all of my patients that I see who come in with nasal polyps, and especially when you do a nasal endoscopy and you see that classic like sticky yellow mucus, I routinely ask patients about, about asthma and, and knowing that the prevalence of asthma is, is, can be very high in patients with nasal polyps. But then I will ask them about their aspirin sensitivity. You know, do they have a history of taking asthma where they're um, you know, coughing uh, flared up, if shortness of breath or wheezing flared up, uh, or outright just you know, they know that they can't take aspirin because it worsens their uh, previous diagnosis of, of asthma or their current uh, asthma diagnosis. So some people can outright tell you and others you kind of have to just get a little bit from their history. But that is, you know, one thing that will help sort of alert you to that diagnosis of uh, aspirin-exasperated respiratory disease. And in that situation, I will leverage my allergy colleagues to help um, make that diagnosis and typically through an an aspirin challenge, uh, followed by, you know, the desensitization right then and there. Another patient population that often overlaps that can also be um, one that you don't want to miss is um, you know, someone who presents with polyps and then uh, asthma as well, but you want to make sure that they don't have any other symptoms. So it's eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangitis. And in that patient population, they also have that typical eosinophilic uh, mucin that you'll see on nasal endoscopy. These are the ones that can sometimes be missed upfront. I've missed them myself. But you want to ask about, or they'll present about, you know, skin uh, abnormalities or itching, some unusual GI complaints. Um, So keep an eye out for that because I have been able to make that diagnosis. And embarrassingly, so I I remember making a an, an AERD diagnosis in someone, and it turns out that he actually had EGPA. Um, and I just, you know, failed to ask all of these symptoms, and it came out at, you know, the second or third presentation. So keep that in mind, because um, that has significant um, other um, issues. So, for example, cardiac issues uh, that can be life-threatening.
0: Great. And then I would be remiss as we're talking about all these different <laughs> sinus pathologies to not also mention allergic um, fungal rhinosinusitis. And you know, I think. A lot of us have an idea of what that looks like and some of the clinical challenges um, associated with that. But I would love to hear you comment specifically on if there's anything regarding this diagnosis that you have seen um, be challenging, as well as kind of walking us through your optimal management plan for that.
1: This is something that I've spent my whole life sort of researching. So I could probably speak for another hour on just this disease alone. But just in short, you know, allergic fungal rhinosinusitis is just a fascinating subtype of, of chronic rhinosinusitis patients that have nasal polyps. Um, it's associated with, you know, a strong allergy to various different fungal antigens. The diagnosis is quite challenging when it is a representation, meaning someone who's had a prior surgery. Um, So there in in that situation, some of the criteria and the current clinical criteria that we lean on is the Benton-Kuhn criteria. And in that situation, you need to have, you know, CT changes that are consistent with allergic fungal, presence of eosinophilic mucin, and then evidence of fungal um, hyphae on microscopic evaluation. And in someone who's already had prior surgery, they may not have that full blown exacerbation where they meet that criteria. So it does make it um, sometimes challenging to make that diagnosis. In someone who's presenting for the first time, it's almost like, you know, when you see it, you know what it is. Um, But what's interesting is that when I speak to my colleagues, let's say in other geographic regions where allergic fungal is not so. Uh, prevalent. So, for example, in the North, the presentation is very different. So I think in that situation, we do need to have more communications um, and maybe a revisit of the criteria for allergic fungal, because, you know, are the patients that the Northeast, um, the ones that meet all the other criteria, but maybe not the fungal hypersensitivity or, or missing one or two criteria, are they the same thing as what we're seeing in the South? But the classic South, the ones that um, Southern presentation that Ben and Kuhn described, they can be challenging to diagnose in someone who's already been previously uh, treated. So that's where it becomes challenging. In terms of treatment, um, they go one of two ways. If you get them initially and you do a a very complete surgery uh, and it's unilateral, the response can be very, very successful. In someone who may not have a, completely, a complete surgery up front or who have bilateral disease, those patients can be very challenging, especially if they continue to live where there's a lot of fungal exposure. And so it can go either one way or the other with them, but uh, definitely a very difficult subtype of chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal
0: polyps. Yeah, thank you for that. And, you know, just to kind of wrap up what we've discussed so far, I think the the major theme of all your responses, Dr. Luang, has has really been around awareness, right? So awareness of the different respiratory as well as non-respiratory comorbid conditions and symptoms that our patients may be complaining of. And then we reviewed a couple of biomarkers. You know, most of them are related to the type 2 inflammation that we see. And, you know, the the serum and tissue eosinophils, I agree, are are some of the more routinely available now with certainly more on the horizon that we're all very excited for, Um, as well as a couple of challenging disease states, such as AERD, as well as uh, AFRS. Just wondering if you had any other thoughts before we close.
1: No, I think you summed it up, you know, really well. I think that when we first started looking at this disease, we were kind of just focused on chronic rhinosinusitis. Um, and then, you know, being able to decide if it was infectious versus inf- inflammation and that was just, you know, in the 19 kind of 60s, 70s and then uh, with sinus surgery really kind of exploded trying to understand this disease process. And now I think that we've gotten to the point where we're starting to appreciate that sometimes some of these diseases kind of present with other things and um, they have implications as you sort of alluded to, not only in the treatment, but in their diagnosis and also their response to your treatment, right? So for example, in someone who, uh, you know, we, we know that depression and anxiety is more prevalent in chronic rhinosinusitis. Well, you know, their response to your treatment may not be as expected given their perception of their symptoms, because this is a symptom disease. So I think it's really important to start looking and I'm happy that we're starting to really think about these other comorbidities as it affects, um, you know, chronic rhinosinusitis.
0: Yeah, absolutely. What a wonderful closing thought we need to treat the whole patient instead of just their noses or what we can see on endoscopy. Well, thank you so much. um, Again, Dr. Luang, this has been an AAOA podcast, and it has been a non-promotional, non-CME disease state educational podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Otolaryngic Allergy in collaboration with and paid for by GSK. And thank you again to Dr. Luang for all of your excellent insights. Thank you.